1: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Posamentier, who is the co-author of The Circle, a Mathematical Explanation Beyond the Line. This book goes considerably beyond what its modest title would suggest. The circle has played a pivotal role, that's roll with an E, but its ability to roll with an L has helped produce our industrial civilization. Moreover, the circle appears in our art, our literature, and our culture as well, This delightful book will not only reacquaint readers with the pleasures of the geometry they once knew, but will show how the circle continues to enchant mathematicians today who continue to discover new and surprising properties about this most fundamental of shapes. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to have you. Al, what motivates you to write books on mathematics for the general readership? Well, it it goes back to January 2nd, 2002, (laughs) where I wrote an
0: op-ed in the New York Times, about a half page, um, talking about palindromic numbers since 2002 was a palindromic year. And uh, it was intended to turn people on to mathematics, because I must tell you that uh, whenever I'm in a uh, social setting and they find out that math is my field, I always get the response, oh, my God, I was always terrible in mathematics. Same thing happens to me, Al. And it's as though it's a badge of honor amongst doctors, lawyers, accountants, what have you, to say that they were lousy in mathematics, but look where I am today. I am successful. And uh, that's sort of disturbing. And so I felt that that has to be changed some way. But what happened was I must have gotten about 400 or more emails following that uh, op-ed in the New York Times and amongst them were a number of invitations from publishers to do the kind of thing I ended up doing for Prometheus Books, which is now part of Random House. And uh, what I did was, the first book I did was called Math Charmers. I just took about oh several topics, quite a few topics, over 100, I suppose, on all aspects of mathematics that could be understood by someone that has no more mathematics than high school geometry, we'll say, and even that at a very elementary level, because there is so much material out there that people don't know anything about. As a matter of fact, a book that I've just finished, which will be out next year, and I don't have the title yet, it's still uh, being edited, um, is All the Mathematics Your Teacher Forgot to Tell You. So, you know, every year I've been putting out a book on something that I think could be interesting to the general readership, whether it's Fibonacci numbers of the golden ratio or pi or uh, numbers or what have you. And I did a book a couple of years ago on the secrets of triangles. And so I figured, since I like geometry, what else could I do in geometry that's not in the triangles book to a large extent? Well, everything that's linear boils down to a triangle in some fashion. So I figured a circle. So we did a book on circles. And that's where that came from. It's a long answer to Your question, but uh, I think that gives you the intention of where I am on this.
1: Well, one of my regrets on this interview is that it's not a video interview because your book is very, very visual because geometry, of course, is a visual subject. And one of the things that I'd sort of recommend for our listeners is I always recommend our listeners get the books that we're talking about. But in this particular instance, with this book, it's it might be helpful, I think, that after they get the book, they listen to the interview along with the book in their hands so that they can see some of the things that you're talking about. Because we are going to be talking about geometry. Geometry is visual. And as I said, it's unfortunate that this isn't a video interview. But if nothing else, it's another pitch for them to get your book.
0: Well, I can't argue with that. <laughs>
1: And I know why you selected writing a book about the circle, but I guess polygons are next after that or the uh, or the conic sections, but one of the things that you start out with is a review of high school geometry, which I enjoyed a lot, but when I looked at it, some of the theorems that you had selected were very familiar to me, others weren't, and there were a few that I thought might have been in there that you sort of omitted, although they tended to appear later in the book, and so I was curious about what dictated your choice of which theorems to choose in culling the basics from high school geometry. Okay, that's
0: a very good question. What I did was, I thought about all of the theorems that I might need to use throughout the book. The basics of geometry, uh, such as inscribed angles and how they're measured, and um, just all the, you know, the relationships of chords and very, very simple stuff, but the stuff you need to have. And what I found was when I, uh, that What we learn in geometry, in the high school geometry course, is sometimes not even taught in Europe. As a matter of fact, um, when I lecture in Europe, I have to remember that they're not aware of the fact that an inscribed angle is measured by one half its intercepted arc. Not that they can't understand it. It's not part of the curriculum in some countries. So I figured I'd give them those things that I might use, the tools, and so that they can go ahead with it. For example, we know that an inscribed angle is measured by one half its intercepted arc. Well, if you take an angle that's inscribed in a semicircle, the intercepted arc is 180. So we don't have to mention the fact that the, uh, an angle inscribed in a semicircle is a right angle because that's already taken care of by
1: the other. And that was the theorem that I missed that I was definitely looking for. Well... The, f- the fact that the inscribed angle in a semicircle was a right angle.
0: Well, it's uncovered because half of 180 is 90, and so I, th- <clears throat> I thought that would be a little too trivial.
1: You know, one of the things that our listeners should know is that Al is not only a mathematician, but he's also a mathematics educator and a former dean. And I guess you have a lot of experience with mathematics education, you said, in Europe. And it's surprising that what we think of as a basic geometry curriculum differs from place to place. Have you had any experience with what the curriculum is like in Asia? Because Asia is generally assumed to be cutting edge in this level of uh, of education.
0: It's an interesting thing you mentioned there because my experience, and again, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've got many decades of experience in this field. And I've experienced things that are quite interesting. For example, one time I had a leading educator from the United, American came back from Japan and gave a lecture about her experiences in Japan. And she told about how wonderful what she saw was and so on and so forth. I absolute coincidence. The next day, I had a visitor from Japan, a mathematician. And I said, gee, what this woman talked about is just wonderful. It's amazing what you guys do. And he looked at me as though, what were you talking about? And I showed him what she said. He, and he said to me, oh, she went to a special school. That's not typical of what goes on there. So I'm a little bit cautious when people talk about what goes on in other countries, because I can tell you from my experience, and I again, this is my experience, when I'm in other countries, they're always eager to know how we do things because apparently the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, and people in other countries think that we have all the answers. I mean, they do know that we got up to the moon and they didn't, so we must be doing a few things right. As far as the Singapore math and things like that, those are good things, and they're good if you know how to do them, but I tell you the most important factor, and I don't think people could argue much with this, going right to K to 12 is getting a teacher who loves mathematics teaching the subject. And unfortunately, one of the biggest problems in this country is that the general populace is not crazy about mathematics. And the general populace is very well represented at the elementary school level. Those teachers are part of the general populace. And many of them don't like mathematics, didn't do well in mathematics. And so when they present topics in mathematics, they do it as a requirement that they have and not love. In other words, they might talk lovingly, we're going to talk about how George Washington did XYZ, because they may be a history buff, or they may like music and talk about music with a great deal of enthusiasm. And the next thing is say, okay, open your books, turn to page 55, and do the first 10 questions. And so the kids see mathematics almost as a punishment and they don't see mathematics with all the beauty and power that it in- holds because many teachers, A, don't know about it. It's not necessarily part of the curriculum. And it's just out there uh, to grab um, if you know it's to be grabbed. So you know, if you ask me why I do this, I'm trying to make up for the
1: past. You know, I think that's an excellent explanation. But I would add that in addition to having people who love mathematics teaching mathematics, um, I think it's very important that we get the parents involved with the educational Absolutely. process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because sometimes they're not. I, I experienced that a lot. And one of the things that you said really resonated about the grass being greener on the other side of the fence, because one of the things that I've noticed being a college educator, as you are, is that almost invariably, Foreigner, uh, the foreign countries send their college level students over here to be educated rather than the other way around. That's right. That's right.
0: And I, I, of course, now I'm going to say something that's politically incorrect. Oh, please do. But I'm a born New Yorker. As a matter of fact, born in Manhattan. So So am I. So was I. Lenox Hill Hospital. Yeah, well, the one I was born in doesn't exist anymore. 57th and 10th. But uh, be that as it may. When I'm in Europe, I'm not introduced as an American. I'm introduced as a New Yorker. There's a a certain cachet to New York and what we do in New York. Now, it turns out by chance or whatever, I was heavily involved in writing the standards for the state, the math standards for the state of New York. And they were outstanding standards until, of course, everything got replaced by the Common Core. Oh,
1: please. Yes, you just hit. I believe you absolutely. You hit one of my, you know, one of one of the things that uh, I'm absolutely you, passionate
0: about. I, I haven't studied the Common Core as much as I should, perhaps, but I did notice one thing that bothers me to no end, and that is the fact that in the geometry course, the kids are taught about transformations. Now, there's nothing wrong with transformations. I think it's a wonderful topic for higher mathematics, for those people interested. It definitely pollutes the high school geometry course. Which is the which is taught only in this country? I haven't seen any other country yet that teaches an entire year of geometry because it's the one time that the kids in high school sort of simulate the work of a mathematician, building up a subject matter from scratch and going through it in, in a sort of logical way. And now, when you introduce the notion of of um, transformations, you're forcing the kids to learn why the two triangles can slide together or flip together to coincide or to be the same shape or whatever. And I think that really distracts from the original purpose of it. But I'm only one voice. I do know that there are there are groups of mathematicians that feel the same way I do. But I'm one of them. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But that that has really destroyed the course as far as I'm concerned. And uh, if, if history is any indication as to where we're going to go... And having lived through the new math and where we learned that some words, uh, when when I went to school and we solved an equation, you transposed something from one side to the other. And when the new math came in, the word transpose became a four-letter word. And you weren't allowed to use that anymore because you had to, and that was sensible. But they went overboard on a lot of that. And by the early 70s, the new math sort of faded away and it was back to basics. And then once technology came in, that sort of changed the curriculum once again. So we go through phases in mathematics over the decades, and I'm sure this common core will either be pared down or made a little bit more sensible, but it's gotten a lot of resistance and sometimes, unfortunately, gets politically uh, and, and uh, involved, and that's not good either. So there's a little bit of philosophizing or politicizing, whichever.
1: Perfectly okay, and I just want to tell you I've lived exactly the same set of experiences you have, except in a place where the weather is better and the people less... uh Uh, the people less frantic, namely California. But let's get back to your book for a moment, because I want to focus on your book a little bit Uh more and the circle. It seems as if the geometry of the circle went through the same fallow period as the rest of intellectual development during the Dark Ages and then reemerged afterwards. There were a couple of uh, theorems that you quoted that were from uh, from like the 17th or 18th century, Simpson's line and McKell's theorem, they were totally unknown to me and I suspect to many mathematicians. Right.
0: that's a very good point you raise because who the high school geometry course that, as I said, is pretty unique to the United States is a development that goes through whatever we've seen, you know. They're, they've skipped a lot of very useful theorems For example, let me mention Ceva's theorem, or Ceva, C-E-V-A, Italian mathematician uh, a couple of hundred years ago, who came up with a wonderful theorem that proves when three lines that emanate from a vertex of a triangle to the opposite side are concurrent, that is, they go through one point. Now, we know that the altitudes of a triangle, the three altitudes, go through a common point. The three angle bisectors of a triangle go through a common point. The three perpendicular bisectors go through a common point. I mean, there is the commonality of concurrency. Well, the notion of concurrency is pretty much skipped over. And if a kid wants to, a student, excuse me, wants to prove using the high school tools, concurrency, it can be done. Um, The angle bisectors, medians or or, uh, altitudes, Can be done. The altitude is a little bit more difficult, but uh, it can be done, and it can be done very neatly. However, if you know Siva's theorem, these can be done in one step. And unfortunately, we don't introduce Siva's theorem. Now, we have uh, other theorems that are absolutely beautiful. And here I'd like to point out that when we introduce these theorems, the uh, computer offers a lovely method for showing students. That something can be true in all cases. In other words, when we tell a kid that the altitudes of a triangle, or three altitudes, go through one point, they either take our word for it or they say, How can you prove that's true for all triangles? So we go through a proof, we draw a random triangle, and we do the proof. And they say, Well, I guess that's true. But it's so beautiful when you have a dynamic software such as. geometer sketchpad, which is the one I like the best. Uh, There's the Geograba, which is uh, a free software that you get online. Uh, There's Capri that's used mostly in Europe. And these are drawing programs where you can draw this thing on the computer and then draw your altitudes and then distort the original triangle. And as you distort the shape of the original triangle, those things that are common to all triangles remain the same. So let's say you drew the angle bisectors of a triangle, all three, and they go through a common point. And then you distort the triangle to other shaped triangles. Those three lines that were the angle bisector lines will always remain concurrent. And that is very powerful. Then there's a theorem called Simpson's theorem. And by the way, there are always cute stories. And, and, and when you tell these cute stories to students, they get a kick out of it. Uh Simpson, Robert Simpson, was a Scottish mathematician in the early 1700s, and he was the one guy who wrote, in uh, probably the first guy who wrote in English a course if, of geometry, a study of geometry, uh, based basically on Euclid's elements. And that book has been in print now f- for, from the 1700s right through most of the 1800s. I happen to have a copy from the 1700s, And one from about 1850, and they're exactly the same, except the print is much superior in 1850 as it was in 1750. In any case, everything that everything that was sort of Euclidean in style was attributed to Simpson, whether he did it or not, we don't know. However, anything that was done in coordinate geometry was attributed to Descartes. We call that Cartesian uh, geometry. Well, this theorem that's very famous, known as Simpson's theorem is attributed to him. And it is not by him. It's by a fellow by the name of William Wallace in 1797, long after Simpson was productive. And uh, yet it's to this day, it's still referred to as Simpson's theorem. So the kids get a kick out of telling them little historical uh, screw-ups, if I can use that word. Um, It's a very nice theorem. It's very simple. If you have a circle and you have a triangle inscribed in a circle and you choose any point on the circle... And from that point, you draw perpendiculars to the uh, uh, three sides of the triangle. Those points will always be uh, collinear. Collinear meaning they lie on the same straight line. But these things are not taught in the high school course. Maybe there's not enough time. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, so whoever originated the origin. You know, the geometry course that we teach in high school probably originated in the mid-1850s. And it was a fellow by the name of Davies, who I believe was a Columbian at West Point, And he wrote a book called On Geometry, mid 1850s, uh, based largely, I suspect, on Simpson's book. And that's been the basis for the high school geometry course that we teach in the United States. And uh, it, it's evolved over time, and things have got added, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's just plain geometry. Um, in the United States we used to have a course called ge- solid geometry which was oh, all the toughest geometry. course
1: I ever took. What's that? That's the toughest course I ever that took. That was my favorite course in high school. <laughs> you probably did a whole lot better in it than I did because I thought that course was brutal.
0: No, well actually I'll tell you a story. Uh in 19 I think it was 1966 or 67 was the last year that New York State had sanctioned that as an official course. Each course in New York State in mathematics always ended with a regents examination, a statewide exam. And that was the last year they did it. And I was coaching a math team at uh, Theodore Roosevelt High School in the Bronx that year. And uh, I told them, I said, you know, you guys are juniors. Next year, you would be taking the solid geometry course, but they're not going to be offering it anymore. What if we met every day during your lunch period and we do the course? And in, in about a month and a half, we did the entire course and everybody in that class got over 90 on the regions. It was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, but it was a great course. And uh, I, of course, miss it. And yes, we do have some solid geometry in the book called spherical geometry. In other words, geometry on a plane is what we typically see as geometry, where a triangle has three angles, the sum of which is 180 degrees. Well, on a sphere, there is a spherical triangle. Now first of all the only lines that we consider on a sphere are those lines which we call great circle lines that is if you cut with a, if you have a ball and you draw a great circle and you cut that ball along the great circle with a saw it will go right through the center of the uh, of the ball of the sphere and if you create a triangle with these great circle lines they've got to be greater than the, num- the The sum of the angles of those triangles has to be greater than 180 and less than 540. And there's no such thing really as parallelism because there is no such thing on a sphere. But, uh, we all know and, and have come across a use of the, uh, or an application of spherical geometry. When you take a, an airplane ride from New York, say to, uh, Vienna, Austria and uh, you look at the path that the plane takes, he typically cuts right very close or over Greenland. And you say, why the heck is he going all the way up north? When all, If you look at a map, he should go straight across and that's it. No, because the shortest distance between two points on a sphere are the two points along a great circle. So that plane is actually traveling a much shorter distance by going over a piece of Greenland back into uh, a lower part. It's a great circle route, which is the shortest distance between two points, just as a line on a a straight line on a plane is the shortest distance between two points.
1: Al, you know, there's a very interesting point that comes up in conjunction with some of the things that you just talked about. Um, One of the things that always impressed me, and I like geometry, but... I wasn't passionate about it the way that you are, possibly because I was not really a visual person. But the moment we hit analytic geometry, I got really interested in geometry simply because... So many of the theorems that were so difficult, at least for me to prove, in geometry turned out to be a slam dunk thanks to the incorporation of algebra with geometry that analytic geometry affords. And so that made me wonder something, and I've often thought about this. There are There's a whole lot of geometry that can be done in a more straightforward fashion, or at least the proofs are simpler if you use analytic geometry, such as the proof that The tangent to a circle is perpendicular to the radius. I think that's that's what's called an indirect proof in regular geometry, but it's very, very quick in analytic geometry. And I wonder if you think that a standard geometry course would benefit from simultaneously learning analytic geometry and seeing both approaches to the subject.
0: Well, that's a very good point. And yes, we do, uh, as the cor- high school geometry course evolved over years, over decades, they did introduce some coordinate geometry, or you call it analytic geometry, in there. But there are those purists who felt that it detracts from the purpose of the course. Now, somehow, I keep recalling that in the Math Teacher Journal, I believe it was 1967, where people once again, this was around the time when people were arguing against the new math, which evolved around the uh, American panic to Sputnik, um, where Carl Allendorfer, who was a math professor out on the West Coast, I believe, at the University of Washington, um, wrote a lovely piece defending geometry and said that this was, that it should remain as a, uh, a course where you develop things logically through our reasoning and so on whereas what you're doing and there's nothing wrong with that you're using the cartesian plane to prove things which you can certainly do you know you can prove per- perpendicularity by showing the two equations of these two lines are have slopes which are negative reciprocals to one another or whatever it is but it it's although it's a valid system and it it certainly I'm not denigrating it it takes away from what I believe was the purpose of that one course, which simulates the work of a mathematician, developing a course from axioms and postulates, and then going into uh, theorems with uh, uh, minutiae and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's just my take. This is a, you know, it's one man's opinion, as it were.
1: Well, that's why I'm interviewing you, because you have a lot of experience. You wrote a very interesting book, and I'm interested in your opinion, as I'm sure our listeners are, and I think I know what the answer to this next question is, is going to be. How important is it, do you feel, to emphasize two-column proofs in a geometry course? Huh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there are pros and cons, and, and, and this is something that
0: um, probably is controversial. Um. The problem, the, the the downside of a two-column proof, is that sometimes kids, students, will tend to memorize how a proof is done by memorizing the various steps because they're so well uh, uh, stratified. On the other hand, um, the argument to write a paragraph proof. Probably could be as good if a person really understands what he or she is doing. So my concern is this. The two column proof forces a student, if it's done without memorization and that kind of thing, to logically see the steps, step, 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 step. And you don't run the risk of maybe skipping something or assuming something that you might do if you're writing a paragraph proof. So. I guess I would come down on the side of doing a two-column proof, where you make a statement and you justify it. Although I'm not saying that you cannot do that in a paragraph form.
1: Well, I think one of the things that happened, and in uh, in teaching geometry, and like you, I I spent time working on the standards for the California uh, um, for California high school education. And I got into it partially because I started looking at the textbooks that were being written in the 1980s. And the textbooks that were being written in the 1980s seemed to abandon proofs almost entirely, or at least to a large extent. And this worried me a lot because part of the beauty of geometry is the ability to learn and think logically as you've emphasized and I were uh, whereas I can agree with you that there's a certain um, that forcing people to write the two-column proof rather than the argument proof that it's done in paragraph form either way you get the essence of the logical argument but with the two-column proof you get the fact that you have to include all the steps and that's why I got to be in plain geometry because I was always skipping steps that were obvious and you can't do that.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I tell you, I'm very sensitive to this point because I did write a geometry textbook uh, for McGraw-Hill in the 1970s. One edition, I think, was 72. The other one was 77. The book, interestingly enough, is has been republished two years ago by Dover and updated. But basically, it is um, um, the same as it was then because things haven't changed that much. And yes, I do stick with the two-column proof in that book pretty much uh, throughout. Uh, as you move on to the end and you make arguments, you do go into a little bit of a paragraph situation, but largely
1: it's a two-column setup. Let's go back to your book, which as is discussing uh, discussing various theorems about the circles that were basically unknown to me. And a couple of those were the six-point circle and the nine-point circle. They show the development of math growth, but can you explain the significance of these theorems and basically what they say? And I really wish we were doing a video interview.
0: Okay. Um, We know, first of all, that anytime you have three points that are not collinear, in other words, that don't lie in a straight line, it will determine a unique circle. Okay, that's easy. Well, the famous Swiss mathematician Leonhard Euler came up with a, uh, uh, a proof or a uh, justification, if you will, I'll use that word, that the that there are actually six points that lie on uh, the same circle, and then later on, and they, they proved it, of course. Uh, Feuerbach, a German mathematician, proved that there were another three points on the same circle. Well rather than to tell you where those points are, because it's not that uh, easy, you know, they. uh, Sure, we need pictures. We need a picture. The nice thing about it is that circle then relates to all kinds of other things. For example, the, uh, the, the center of the circle, the, the point of intersection of the altitudes, they all somehow begin to relate to one another. These are on the same straight line. These are here. It just, it, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So uh, whereas Euler had six points, it became a nine-point circle. And then it keeps growing with more and more properties on that circle, which makes it, th- that's where the, the beauty and power of mathematics shows itself. We keep finding more and more relationships. I mean, you, you know, even something as simple as the Pythagorean Theorem, we all, everybody knows and everybody remembers. They don't remember what it was, but they remember a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Okay. Well, there, are, there was a book written in 1940 by Elisha S. Loomis that showed that he, he found, I think, 340 proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. And since then, there have been many more proofs. Of course, I always like to, when I introduce the Pythagorean theorem, I ask the students, what did Euclid, Pythagoras, and, Ka- uh, and President James A. Garfield all have in common? They look right. at me and they say, well, I know the first two, but Garfield was president of the United States. Well, all three of them proved the Pythagorean theorem originally. In other words, Garfield, before while he was a member of Congress, he actually, in a, a New England Journal of uh, Mathematics, came up with a wonderful proof of the Pythagorean theorem using trapezoidal properties. So it's, uh, you know, it's there, so much growth and there's so many things that you can uh, expound on. And it come back to the previous point I made, if the teacher likes mathematics. Now, obviously, in high school, we don't have that problem as much as we do in the elementary level, because those teachers were supposedly math majors in college. They chose mathematics as their favorite subject. So I would hope that in the high school level courses, the enthusiasm would be brought in the classroom, although I know in all cases that's not the case. However, Uh, that's where
1: a resourceful teacher will make the lessons more exciting and interesting. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed about your book were there were sections in it that had never really occurred to me. And one of those involved geometrical packing problems. I was familiar with the cannonball packing problem because that's a three-dimensional packing problem, which you see in supermarkets when you see all the grapefruit stacked in Sort of a pyramidal type array, but I really hadn't thought about the fact that there would be all these packing problems involving the circle in a plane geometry context.
0: Well, yeah, that's interesting, but I have to tell you what motivated me to that, uh, and I um, was a very good friend of mine, uh, Herbert A. Hauptman, who happens to be the first mathematician to have won the Nobel Prize, although there's no prize in mathematics; he got it in chemistry. He solved a forty-year-old problem in crystallography using mathematical methods. But he and I wrote several books together, and uh, one of his his hobby, if you will, was packing. And he would create these lovely three-dimensional polyhedra and figure out mathematically how you can pack them so there would be absolutely no empty space in them. Sometimes using marbles all the same size, sometimes using different sizes. And so the whole notion of packing came up there. And it's it's just an interesting alternative. And again, since we have a book on circles, there's a lot to talk about circles. They come up in philosophy. They come up in art. They come up in in, in physics. They come up in plane geometry and spherical geometry. And we try to cover everything, but in a way that the general readership can understand it. And anytime we introduce a topic or an idea or a concept that may not be at the fingertips of a of the general readership, we just explain it. And that's probably why that first section is in there, because it explains the basic tools we're going to be using throughout, all of which are very, very simple. But if a tool comes up that's used for one little purpose throughout, we will explain it there. And if there's something that needs um, further explanation or if, if some of the general readership is pretty clever, then we would uh, uh, relate that back to an appendix where we say, well, if you're really interested why this is true, the proof is a little bit distracting because, you know, we'd have a nice flow throughout the book, a nice friendly readership flow. We put it in the back as an appendix, so those people who want to know why is this really true are referred to the
1: appendix for a detailed proof as to why that works. You know, one of the things that about packing problems is that it's not just looking and coming up with a solution. It's that showing a solution is optimal. And I think that when you talk about optimal solutions... You have to go beyond geometry. I'm not sure whether or not there's any theorem in geometry that talks about the optimality of a solution. Usually, that's the domain of calculus.
0: Yeah, well, we do not have any calculus. That's one thing I, I was very uh, um, uh, in, in, in inflexible about. Is that I don't? I, I think calculus. Once we hit calculus, you're hitting a subject area that the general readership just doesn't understand or know. Now, they may have taken calculus, but they probably forgot it because it's not something that we use on a daily basis. So, wherever you know, there are many relationships in mathematics that we can prove, that we say, well, we can use calculus to prove this, but you can also do it in other ways. For example, a turning point on a on a parabola, if you will, or, you know, the, the, this can be gotten in another way without calculus. Sometimes it's not as elegant, but it's, it's, it's obtainable. So I
1: tried throughout the book to totally ignore the fact that calculus exists. Well, even though you did, you sort of touched on it in the following chapter when you talked about cycloids. Oh, yeah. And cycloids are a curve which yes. you can describe, you know, because it's your book, you can describe how a cycloid arises. But I first encountered the cycloid in calculus The proved the basic properties of it in calculus and I was a little surprised that the cycloid was included in a book of geometry, because I think it's one of those curves that, tr- that is actually a level beyond a uh, geometry course. But obviously, you think otherwise, because you included it there.
0: Yeah, again, you're right, exactly right at what you said. However, people will wonder what happens if you roll, we have, say, one coin, uh, a dime or a quarter. On itself. In other words, you have one quarter, or let's say a bigger, let's say a half dollar piece a little bit bigger, and uh, you take another one and roll it along without slipping along the circumference of the first one, and you wonder what kind what what's the path of the center or a point on the movable uh, coin? And uh, when you do that, you see you get one of these cycloids and different versions of it. So uh you know we 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 do it in a way without calculus. We we talk about it as you know sometimes it gets a little bit uh less elegant as it might be in calculus, but it's 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 intelligible for the general audience which is the goal.
1: Well, in in a sense, these curves have appeared before because one of the first theories about um, the revolution of the planets around the sun was based on the idea of epicycles, which are cycloid-related curves, although they're not quite cycloids. But nonetheless, the idea of epicycles and circles revolving around circles was something that was known to the mathematicians that existed back in the Grecian era.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, if we go back to history, um, the brilliant, um, mathematicians or physicists or astronomers of those days were of such high quality intelligence. I mean, it's, it's indescribable at this point because, uh, with the primitive tools and the really no real history of knowledge that they had and they came up with these discoveries. I mean, to me, Kepler is the most impressive of all because of uh, uh, his, um, his discovering the planet paths around the sun and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, there are certain things that we present in this book, which I believe are really sometimes what, how can that be? For example, the Mascheroni constructions, the Mascheroni constructions, I'm, I'm moving the, a little bit because I know I'm watching the clock a little bit here. Uh, no problem. Um, Mascheroni Constructions, Lorenzo Mascheroni, came up with a way of proving or demonstrating and proving, of course, that any construction that you can do with a straight edge and compasses, which is the typical construction that the kids learn in high school geometry, can be done with just the compasses. They say, wait a minute, what do you mean? You can do all these constructions without a ruler, without a straight edge? Yeah. How are you going to draw a line? Well, we're not going to draw the line, but we can get as many points on the line as we need, and for all intents and purposes, that's as good as a line. Okay, well, how are you going to do that? Well, there are uh, five different things you need to know. You have to find the intersection of two circles with the compasses, no problem. You have to find the intersection of two lines, we can do that with the compasses also. Align the a circle, and, and, and so on, and you get these five different um, uh, constructions, and you can prove they can be done, and... That is, and we show how this can be done, and it's really, really fascinating. The other thing is the, um, and again, it goes back to a a point I made before with the Simpson line. Uh, These are called Mascheroni constructions. The 1700s is when uh, Lorenzo Mascheroni flourished and did his work. Well, (laughs) the interesting thing is that uh, it was discovered, I believe, in the early part of the 20th century, that he was actually anticipated by a fellow a Danish mathematician whose name was George Mohr, M-O-H-R, who had also written a book and done that, although we are pretty well uh, c- uh, com- comfortable that Mat- uh, Mascheroni was not aware of Mohr's work because he did did his things very differently. But we still call it Mascheroni Constructions, even though Mohr predated him. So these are little things that we show in there um, in addition, uh, you know we have um, the the whole the whole notion of the um, uh, the, uh, the circles of Apollonius, which is another very curious uh, uh, very curious um, uh, aspect of circles. In other words, can you draw a circle that is perpend- uh, that is tangent to three lines? that is tangent to two circles and a given line. There's tangent to three circles. And all these different things where you have to construct a circle that has certain properties based on any one of, uh, any three, three things, a point, a line, and a circle. Going through a point, parallel to, a, 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 going through a point and tangent to a given circle and a given line. And those, uh, those are problems of Apollonius, which we show how they're done. And it's, again, a lot of fun. And it's a challenge. You know, you do a few of them and then you you have a challenge as to how uh, uh, to do the next ones uh, and so on. It's a a little bit of fun there as well. And of course, we show it all there so we don't leave the, uh,
1: the reader hanging. You know, there was one thing in your book that I really enjoyed seeing. And I think our listeners might be too, especially those who were, Paying Attention to Popular Culture in the 1990s. That's the appearance of crop circles. Uh, the appearance of? Crop circles. You discussed the idea of crop circles oh, yes. in your book. Oh, yes. Right,
0: right, right, right.
1: Okay. True. And, you know, maybe you could go into this a little, And because there were a time that people thought that these were, you know, that these were mysterious messages left by alien visitors.
0: Right, right, right. Oh, yes, yes. Well, we also uh, uh, did a piece sort of on where circles are used in philosophy and where circles are used in literature and so on. Um, You know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, I, I find that portion of the book very interesting. It appeared for the readers. It appears at the end, but circles are pervasive in our culture. They appear in architecture. They appear in art. Um, in particular, one of the things that you have some very, very lovely pictures of medieval, um, medieval cathedrals, which have, uh, Circles incorporated in the architecture. And I'm wondering whether or not these were done for aesthetic reasons, geometric reasons, or possibly religious reasons, because the circle, you know, we all think of, you know, the circle of life, things like that, which are actually a part of religion or philosophy.
0: Well, you know, that's a very interesting thing. If we knew the answer to that question, uh, I would be happy to give it to you, but different uh, architects have done things for different reasons. Now, Just to deviate for a moment away from the circle, um, when um, Leonardo da Vinci did some of his artwork, we know, for example, that he used the golden rectangle. And why do we know that? Because he drew art for a book on the golden ratio, and so he knew the contents of the book and then applied it to his art. For example, if you encase Mona Lisa's face in a rectangle. It's a golden rectangle. Now, did he do the golden rectangle and put a face in it? We don't know that. But Leonardo was very very clear on why he did what he did. For example, in the Last Supper, the perspectivity that he got was absolutely perfect. All the lines go to Jesus's right eye. And it's just, he did that intentionally. We know that because of his sketches. So in some cases, we have clues as to why artists do what they do or architects do what they do. And sometimes we don't. For example, let me give you another example of where a circle uh, has a property that is very useful. Have you ever wondered why the manhole covers in the street are round?
1: Yes, I actually have. Okay. Why not square or rectangular? Exactly.
0: Exactly. And the answer is very simple because... If you have a cover that's a circle, it can never fall in. If you have a square cover for a manhole, and you know how these guys kind of slide it back on, and if they don't slide a square correctly, it'll fall right into the hole. Whereas a circle could never fall, a circular manhole cover could never fall in, which also we mentioned in here, uh, the Rollo triangle which is the most amazing uh, triangle
1: I uh, just mentioned. And you mentioned that early on
0: too. The Rouleau Triangle has all the same properties as a circle. It's everywhere equidistant, and there are manhole covers in the United States, uh, in some other cities, not New York, where the cover has a shape of that. And it's an interesting thing because Rouleau, who was a uh, German engineer in the 1800s, he was looking to create a button a button that had the same properties as a circle. When you button your shirt, you push on the button through the buttonhole without looking to what direction the button is going. If the button were a shape of a rectangle or a bar or something, you'd have to fish it through the hole to make it work. You can't shoot it through the the long way. Whereas with a circle, you just push it right through. And the same is true with a Rouleau triangle. And the Rouleau triangle, very simply for the audience, I can. I think we can describe that orally. If you take an equilateral triangle, and you draw an arc on each side of the equilateral triangle with a compasses, where the center of the compasses is at the vertex opposite that side, and you draw the three arcs, that shape is the Rouleau triangle, and it's it's everywhere equidistant. It's the it has the same uh, effect. If you were to use, if you used a wrench on a circular screw, it would have absolutely no effect because it would just slide around. If you put a wrench on a low triangle, exactly the same thing would happen. You wouldn't be able to turn it. So a little extra there to the (laughs) for the audience.
1: And I guess that shows why the heads of nuts are either hexagonal or rectangular or something like that, because you couldn't turn them with a wrench if they were circular, like screws. Yes, but it also
0: tells you why, and I think in in New York for at least, the fire hydrants are pentagons, because you cannot put a wrench on a pentagon unless the wrench is exactly the same shape as that, and you can set it down and turn it. Because in order to put a wrench on something, you need two sides that are parallel. So a hexagon you could use and a, a, a square you could certainly use, but you can't use.
1: Oh, and you don't want random people turning on the hydrant. Exactly. That's very clever. hmm Yeah, fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed about your book is that, it's, as you say, the historical sidelights, because I think it's important when you teach mathematics uh, to realize that not only is the subject matter important, but it's interrelated with the history of our species. Mathematics isn't just this really dry stuff. The mathematics that it's been developed and the mathematics that's been applied it go uh, it uh, connects with the history of our species. And even though your book mentioned you know mentions a lot of stuff like this, I really have to sle- sneak in a plug for a book that to some extent your your book reminded me of. It was James Burke's book on connections because James Burke was doing for inventions sort of what you were doing for things surrounding the circle. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, interesting.
1: Yeah, and I thought... Connections was one of the most memorable books that I ever read, and whenever I see a book that says, reminds me in any way, shape, or form of Connections, I say, the author is doing something really great. And I thought, I really, really enjoyed your book, and I know our listeners will, and some of them will want to get in touch with you. If they do want to get in touch with you, how can they manage that?
0: Well, I'm always available online. Um, I guess my, my email address is the best way to do that, And I'll be happy to phone people back or whatever. Um, And that is ASP1818 at gmail.com.
1: And in addition, one of the things that you mentioned was that you had another book in the works. And I wonder whether or not you have any other projects that you're working on. Oh, my God, yes.
0: (laughs) Well, tell us a few. Well, oh, my God, where do I start? Uh, One book that came out last year actually beginning of this year, was The Neglected Art of Motivating Mathematics Instruction, which is intended for teachers to make help them make their lessons become more exciting by starting off the lesson with something that would motivate the kids. I believe that every math class should begin with something that makes the kids want to be there for the rest of the period.
1: Exactly right.
0: So that's number one. Another book I did was uh, Problem Solving Strategies, where we have ten different strategies for solving problems, with a lot of examples, and I can give you some if you want. Now, um, as one some of them are very easy to explain. Uh, one book that's coming out, I think, at the end of this year, it's already uh, being edited now, is on strategy games. In other words, what are the best strategies for various games like tic tac toe or whatever? I uh, you know different
1: board. That one is, is interesting because it's something that re, that uh, players of Tic-Tac-Toe generally discover at a relatively early age, and that gives them the idea that there is such a thing as strategy. Sure, so I sure, think that's very exactly. important.
0: Um, the book that I mentioned before, which I don't know, it doesn't have a title yet, probably something like Joy of Mathematics or whatever, um, that's going to be out probably in the late spring of next year, and that's already done, is all the topics that a math teacher forgot to tell you about. In other words, from uh, probably the middle school years right through high school, there are so many, so many things that kids could have been exposed to that haven't been because it's just not part of the curriculum. So that's one of the things. Uh, the other book that I'm working on right now that's due out in 2018 is Where Mathematics in Our Culture Appears Everywhere Imaginable in our culture, from uh, investments to probability to geometry, arithmetic, uh, everything you can imagine in everyday life. In other words, how can, you know, even some of these things are weird, like the rule of 72. I'm sure you know that one.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah you know something, Al? One of the things that I hope you will do is I hope you will keep New Books Network in mind so that when some of these books comes out, maybe we'll have the opportunity to to discuss them in the future.
0: Okay, just send me the information. I'll be happy to do it.